Hey guys, I'm really, um, I'm really honored to share today, um, especially as part of this series. Aaron, as Aaron said, we've been doing this coming in hot series. So in the month of August, Aaron and a team from Restore and also from another church went to Greece to work with Syrian refugees. And that was going to be a really big month for Aaron specifically. It was his first time leading the trip not only as pastor of Restore, but also as a representative for SGI, Servant Group International. That's the group that he works with part-time um, to help fundraise for the efforts to serve refugees. So it was his first time doing that, so it was a big deal. So he wisely planned this sermon series where he would have the opportunity to take the month off from preaching because he's lazy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he's not lazy. But because we are connected to a handful of friends who are passionate, phenomenal speakers, and then there's me, and <laughs> I get to do it too. So we've heard from wonderful Ian, our youth pastor over here, and yes, Ian, he was awesome. He was awesome. Um, great cheers. And we heard, we got to hear from Shala and Joel on some really heavy, wonderful topics, So I encourage you guys to check out the website, listen to those on podcast if you are able. So what I was really excited about when Aaron presented this was that there was no really um, topical thing that we needed to find something to preach about. He really kind of gave free reign to choose something. Not that I wouldn't have free reign otherwise, because I'm the boss too. But no, because it was just kind of open-ended. And so I really got to, to pray about it and feel like, okay, what's God put on my gut? What is kind of sitting there that I really feel like is something that needs to be discussed in our church? Um, and it came to me, and I decided I was gonna, going to title the sermon, Own Your Stuff. <laughs> Kid City is up here right now. Use your imagination. Own Your Stuff, which basically was a sermon, a little bit about humility, but when it really came down to it, I figured out, this is a sermon about sin. This is going to be fun. Let's talk about sin. Such a fun word to use. So, that's what we get to talk about today. And I want to let you know why this has been sitting in my gut, why it stuck out to me. To be quite blunt, we're not very good at saying we're sorry. We're not. We're not good at acknowledging when we've hurt someone, when we've done wrong, because our intentions are good. That's why, right? We're, we have good intentions, and it's not fair for them to feel hurt, so I'm not going to apologize. I don't see it in the media hardly ever unless it's for political reasons except one person's not great at it he's political but whatever you see it for political reasons you see celebrities making apologies you know for because their publicists told them to so we see it in that way which are, never really seems all that sincere but then even just like um maybe this is a mid the midwesterner in me but when i go to a store and somebody's kind of in my way and I need to get somewhere, and they're like taking up the whole aisle, I'll be like, oh, excuse me, and they'll look at me like I'm in their way. Mm-hmm. I'm like, say excuse me back. You're in my way. But really, so I'm sensitive to this lack of humility, if you will. I am technically a millennial. I'm at the very top of the age group of that, so I get to say we as millennials suck at apologies. We're not good at it. And it comes down to we have a hard time acknowledging sin. And because that is such an ugly word right now, we're going to visit it today to reconstruct what that really means, because it can come with a lot of junk, right? And we'll get back to that. But first, I did a lot of my research on Facebook. 
I'm just kidding, I did a little bit of research on Facebook. You're supposed to laugh at that, but you didn't, so that's awkward. But I did do a tiny bit of research on Facebook, and part of that is because I am on Facebook a bit. I, we are from um, Indiana, all of our family lives there, and so I share a lot of pictures of my kids. It's an easy way to do that. And to, and to be real, you know, I'm a pastor, and a lot of you I don't get to see all day because you work at your jobs. But I do get to see what's going on a lot of times on social media. So that's a great way, to, not to disciple, but to pastor a little bit and kind of keep up with what's going on. Another one of my favorite things to do is crowdsource. So I like to like put out there, like, what's the best restaurant? Or what's the best minivan? <laughs> or whatever it is. I love it. And I thought I would share a couple fun little posts from our community. Um, stuff that I really love to see. So here's our first one. This is a pose from our lovely Amy, who's back in our corner here. She's a, a floral designer. She does incredible work. This is just from one of her weddings this summer. Isn't she amazing? Isn't that beautiful? She's going to be so mad at me. I did not tell her I was going to do it. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> beautiful work. And then another one here is, the next one is, Marie Martine, who is not with us today, she's not feeling well, but she is a French teacher at a local school, and this is her back-to-school picture. So she doesn't have like a, I'm in this grade picture, but this is her back-to-school picture, and I love celebrating her, and she's a wonderful human. And then this is a recent favorite. This is Amy Johnson, and it says, extrovert problems, made a friend on the metro and missed my stop. Then had to play it cool like I meant to get off where I did. <laughs> That's good. Show of hands. Have you ever done that? We don't have that many extroverts in here. Okay, yeah, it's happened. Yeah. She's cool. I'm sure she played it off really well. Another For this particular sermon, I did a little bit of crowdsourcing, if you will. But it was kind of stepping on... Uh, new territory for me. I don't really ever post anything on Facebook that is like in your face or scary or I don't like debate on Facebook. I love conversation and going back and forth when, we, when I disagree with someone on things in person in a personal setting. I refuse to do that on Facebook. I just think it's a waste of time personally. No offense to my husband who loves to do that, but <laughs> he doesn't love to do it, but he does it sometimes. But I, did, I posted something on there that I knew could incite some debate, and so I actually gave some pretty strict instruction, and I chose my audience well. There's a few of you in here who are part of my audience. Um, I chose people who I know had passionate opinions, who I knew didn't, they didn't have passionate opinions that came from nowhere. They have studied or they have wisdom about them, and I was curious to see what they would say. And the question that I asked, after many different rules saying no debates, no comments, just give me the answer was, in three words or less, or in a statement, like a one-sentence statement, how do you feel when you hear the words sin and repent? And I got some pretty interesting responses, as I imagined that I would. Now, the audience that I asked was, were some Christians, some Christian leaders, and some of my friends who either don't claim any religion or claim to be agnostic or atheist. I didn't get as many responses from the people who are not believers at all. But I did get a, a, some responses from a few people who are sort of on the edge of Christianity, if you will. They're not sure they're going to stick with it. They're having some doubts. And I really appreciated what they shared uh, because it gave me some perspective as we dive into this topic. So here's a couple of the posts I'm going to read. And I'm only going to read 
the um, sort of the negative responses to the word for now. So here's a couple of them. Uh, three words, judgment, hypocrisy, shame. Um, expectations, guilt and shame, hope. Who you are and what you desire are not good. You must change yourself to be worthy. Brokenness, judgment, bad, as in you are bad, worthless, scum, disgusting, disappointing, etc. Ugly, worthless. These are painful to hear, to be honest with you. The, the, thing, the one that was the most painful to read, which I know this person really well and I know her background. I'm really thankful for her for sharing this, but it, it was interesting to read. Um, she's a person who comes from some abuse within a religious community. So here is her response. Control, power, separation. Both words are quite triggering to me growing up in a super legalistic, patriarchal, fundamentalist culture where sin was determined by men in power and repent was used to control and shame you. So said male leader determines what sins are abominable, like girls going to college, for instance, or women speaking in church, or kissing someone, along with things like, you know, murder. And those sins you outside the group and your repent I'm sorry, those sins set you outside the group and your repentance was demanded to be accepted back in the group. Meanwhile, said male leader was busy I'm not gonna use her word, doing something with his live in nanny. Like I said, quite triggering. None of it really had to do with Jesus and freedom and grace. It was a means of control and power. And my guess is that you in this room can understand some of these feelings. You probably might even nod along if you could with some of the words that are used. This hurts me to read. This blew me away, the responses I got. I was really thankful that they shared so openly, but it confirmed the fact that we need to talk about this. Because it's not a word that's going away and it's not a word that's meaningless to us as believers. In fact, it's something I think is quite beautiful. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna deconstruct this a little bit, okay? Let's talk a little bit about sin, the word of it, the meaning of it why we're afraid of focusing on it, all that stuff. First, I want to talk about etymology a little bit, okay? The word sin actually was not a religious word from the beginning. The original words for sin, I learned, thanks to a, a great source that Ian sent me this week, was the Hebrew word for sin was kata. Let me put that on the screen for you. Kata. And the Greek word was hamartia. These words actually mean to fail at fulfilling a goal or to miss the mark. And the word, the, the mark, is actually the word that was used the most in the translations. To miss the mark. Okay, what does that mean? What's the mark in this case? And then, we, then comes along the Ten Commandments, which is where our understanding of this and our connection to religious things came from was the Ten Commandments. Half the Ten Commandments were 
uh, basically ideas that God was giving us so that we wouldn't um, disobey and harm his name. The other half was so that we wouldn't harm his people. In the first chapter of Genesis, the very first thing we read in the Bible, it says that we are made in his image. And when he designed us and he said, do not sin, and he said to Cain and Abel, do not sin, what that means is if you are made in my image, then treat yourself as you should and treat others as you would treat me, as you would treat God. So the Ten Commandments were to simplify. It was a method of saying, here's how you follow the way I actually designed you to be so that you can honor me and honor the people that I made that are your brothers and sisters. That's where this word comes from. It's to miss the mark. What's the mark? It's God. It's to miss God. When you sin, you are separating yourself from God. Okay? So that's the meaning of the word sin. Why do we not acknowledge sin? Why do we not talk about it? Not only is it because the word sounds ugly. We've got other reasons. One is we're scared of change. We don't want to change our ways because ultimately we don't trust God. We don't want to change something because we're afraid of what might happen if we change it. We are afraid or unwilling to experience or accept the repercussions. Right? If you lie, maybe, if you tell a lie, if you have to apologize and acknowledge that you lied, there's a number of things that if you're a kid, you can kind of get in trouble from your parents. If it's with your boss, you can lose your job, right? And so the best thing we know to do is to find a way to kind of sweep it under the rug. We're afraid of the repercussions because there are consequences to sin. There are consequences to doing things that are separate from what God calls us to do, right? We're also too proud to admit that we sin. We're too proud to focus on it because we are so proud of ourselves. We have a culture that tells us, you are awesome, don't let anybody tell you you're different, or any different, I mean. You are perfect the way that you are, which is a beautiful, empowering, important message. But we like to swing the pendulum so far that we like to feel like anything that my heart wants to do is okay. Because it's the best thing for me. I'm sorry if that screws you over, but it's the best thing for me. And so it's what I should be doing. That's what culture tells us. So that's truth, right? That's the way we should live our lives. No. And lastly, I think really too, back to the etymology, I think we really struggle to know what sin is. What sin? You get so far down that road of doing what you want to do, that your heart becomes hardened to know what sin is. I want to talk about somebody today who did that very thing. I'm going to open some of the uh, Old Testament scripture here. Now listen, I want to say this before I dive any deeper. All of these things that I just listed out, we are not going to be able to dive into every one of those today. I think this could be um, an entire year of studying and revisiting this and finding some redemption with this word. But what I'm going to focus on today is both the etymology, and I'm just going to give you some simple advice for how you can acknowledge, face, and move on from sin. Okay? Will you pray with me, though? Because I, I feel just a sudden urge just to stop and pray as we dive into this, because I really think there's something in here I know, I know that you need today. I know it. So pray with me. Let's pray for just open hearts right now, okay? 
Jesus, thank you so much for this word that you have given today. I don't think it's just for me, God. I know it's for everyone in here. And God, I pray that that's what they would hear, your voice and your word. Whatever it is you have to say about this, Lord, that it would challenge us. They would walk out of here feeling freed by your love and challenged by what life is that you call us to. Amen. I'm going to grab my water. Excuse me. All right, so I'm going to open up the Old Testament a little bit. And we're just going to skate a little bit over the story of David and Bathsheba. Some of you may be familiar with it, some may not. The story of Bathsheba reminds us of how great men who are called by God are still humans and struggle with sin. So we're going to open up. If you would like, you can join along. I am going to have it on the screen for you if you'd rather follow along that way. Open up to 2 Samuel chapter 11. So we're going to read about David's sin. It starts out with, The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Skip down to verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. All right, here's what we know about David. At this point, David's a king. We know this about kings. Kings get what they want. David is, is a loves God. He truly does. We've learned that. We know that he loves God and he trusts God. But he's also a man who has been indulged in everything that he wants. And so he's gotten so far into this indulging that he decides he, he's less sensitive to how wrong it is. He sees this beautiful woman showering. She's beautiful. And he wants to have her. He, she should be his. Right? Set aside the fact that he had several concubines already. She was married. She already had a husband. He knew he couldn't be with her if she had a husband. And he really was into her. She was... He would have swiped right on Tinder. She was hot. So he doesn't even, I mean, according to the text, he doesn't hesitate. He invites her to come and stay with him. And, of course, no matter whatever she wanted, he was the king, and he wanted her, so he got her. We don't even get to know if she wanted the same thing. She had to do what he asked. She becomes pregnant with his child, and he decides, okay, i got to find a way out of this. And instead of confronting his lie and going to God and looking for guidance, he gets himself deeper into trouble, and he has her husband killed. Later on, he was confronted by Nathaniel, and he kind of came to his senses. And in Psalm 51, we see his example of repentance. What did he do? He loved God. He didn't stop loving God. He didn't turn away, even though he did something deeply wrong. 
he realized his wrong and he turned around and he went on his knees and he begged for forgiveness. We're going to read through that in Psalm 51. I'm going to put this on the screen for you as well. In a minute, we're going to talk about what it means to ask for forgiveness and to repent. So I want you to really follow along with what's going on with David, what he says, what he does. And let's learn from his example. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Let's move down. Verse 10 says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit, the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. I have that saying on a shirt of mine because it's something I've been hanging on to for a long time. A broken and contrite heart. The word contrite means somebody who is admitting that they're not perfect and I need your help. There's beauty in this brokenness that we do whatever we can to avoid. Beauty that only comes when you acknowledge that sin or acknowledge that that moment when God calls you and you repent. My three words when I hear those words are these. When I hear the words sin and repent, this isn't really three words, I'm cheating. But I can, it's my question. The three things that come to mind are walking away, turning around, and freedom. Freedom, which is so opposite of the words that come to mind, unfortunately, when we hear the words sin and repent. The word repent in itself is also not a religious word originally. It's a word that we associate with it, because how many times have you seen, at least on TV, if you haven't seen it in person, repent, the day is near, right? So that word sounds like this, like, you suck, you're going to die and go to hell if you don't do this. Like, it's, yikes, of course we don't want to be associated with that. We don't, it's a scary thing. It's given us a bad reputation. The word repent is this exact thing right here. The word repent literally means to turn around, to do a 180, go a different direction. Those of you who have been through our um, discipleship huddles, we have a shape that we do called the Kairos Circle. And as we talk about this Kairos Circle, 
we talk about the way that time works and the way that God talks to us. So if you imagine your life like a timeline, like going this way, and you imagine the times when God is calling out to you for some reason, kind of imagine it this way. This moment right here is called Kairos. That's usually something that you are knowing when God needs something from you. Whoop. Whether it is a, it's a sin that you need to acknowledge, or if there's something new that God is calling to you, that calling you to, that is a Kairos moment. And in the Kairos moments, we have two words that we use when we learn what to do with them. And it is to repent and believe. So repent, stop in your tracks. The idea is when God talks to you, he's oftentimes, all the time, every time, saying, I want you to go a different direction, whatever that means. It could be something as, as silly as you're traveling, and you, that's a dumb example, but it could be little. Or it could be something really big and life-changing. You need to move. You need to change your job. You need to reconsider this relationship. It could be a number of things that are really big. It could be there's someone on the street, and God wants you to go to that person. There's a kairos right there. It's those moments when the Holy Spirit comes to us and says, let's talk. There's something going on here. I want to work through you. I want to do something different through you right in this moment, different than what you were about to do. That's what repent means. It just simply means to turn around. It doesn't mean to like lay on the ground naked crying about all your sins. It's to turn around. So here is uh, something I kind of came up with, to be honest with you. I, I looked up and I found lots of different like... Um, spiritual tracks to follow to ask for forgiveness. So there's a lot of different things out there. And maybe you already have something like this and you practice it well, and that's great. But I'm going to give you something that I kind of came up with, and I call this a pattern of repentance. Because here's the thing about repentance. It's not a one-time thing. It's a, it's a lifestyle of coming to the Lord and asking for guidance and being open to his guidance. When you get right down to it, it's really all day long. You're, opening to, you're open to hearing what the Holy Spirit leads you to do. But here are some things that I think go in line with practicing a lifestyle of repentance, a pattern of repentance, um, a pattern of listening to God and obeying him. And it starts with the thing that David said, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Humility. This is the first step, if you will. It's a big step. There's a lot to it. That's the first thing that we have to practice in order to have a repentant lifestyle and to have a lifestyle that's open to God. It's humility. Now, humility, another word that's misused a lot, does not mean to think really lowly of yourself. C.S. Lewis has this really great, great quote. Maybe some of you have seen this, and it is, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Humility literally means to know your value. It doesn't mean to assume your value less. It just means to know your value. And the way that we know our value is to look at ourselves in the image of God. That's our value, what he's made us to do. We're not above anybody. We're not more important than anybody else. Your heart is going to tell you to do things that are harmful to other people. It will. We're also human. It's going to lead you in those directions. Humility is recognizing that, okay, this life is not just about me. It's about God's people. 
about Jesus. So that's humility. And here's kind of some, like I said, steps, if you will. I actually preached a whole sermon on humility several months ago. Check it out online. It was really good. <laughs> Step one in humility is form a lifestyle of thankfulness to God. First thing is to acknowledge who he is. Can't acknowledge who you are until you acknowledge who he is first. I have a history, Aaron and I both do, of recognizing problems or bad things going on in the world, and we tend to um, slip on the negative side, to be honest with you. And then last year, I kind of had a, a, a renewed spirit, if you will, for being more thankful and recognizing and acknowledging God's presence and his provision. I cannot tell you how much it's helped my health just to be thankful, just to stop and acknowledge right down to the sound of the wind in, in the trees. I don't know about you, but that's one of my favorite sounds in the world. Just the wind in the trees, it gives me peace. Thank you, God, that's amazing. Thank God for those of you in here who have taught me things, who I've learned from, who I've gotten to live life with. Assume that God has given you so much, so much more than we deserve, and practice a lifestyle of acknowledging it and thanking him. Because when you do that, you're not only getting a better image of God, but you're getting a better image of yourself. You did not give yourself this life. You can work your tail off to do something, but guess what? Something got you to the part where you got to do that thing. Somebody else gave you that job to do that thing. You don't do anything on your own. You accomplish nothing on your own. God helps you with everything that you do. So we get to know his value. God-centered thankfulness helps us grow a humility as it stops pride from growing. Next, you need to acknowledge where you've missed the, the mark, right? You need to acknowledge our sins. The best way to do this is be in his word and be praying often. You realize your sin more when you, when you realize what sin is. And I can sit here and give you a list of sins, and there's lots of different scriptures with that. But that's something you need to dive in. You need to be in the Bible. You need to be reading it regularly. You need to be around people who hold you accountable. Those are the healthiest relationships you could have. It's somebody who will actually hold you accountable because they want the best thing for you. Once you've been able to acknowledge where you've hurt somebody, or you've hurt yourself, or you've sinned against God, ultimately, you apologize. Sincerely apologize. You take a moment and you say it out loud, and you ask for forgiveness to God first. And if you need to ask forgiveness from somebody, go say you're sorry. Bite your pride and recognize that that acknowledgement of you hurting somebody, even though your intention was good. I teach my kids this all the time. My kids hurt each other. They do a lot of wrestling. They're loud. They're rambunctious. Inevitably, somebody gets hurt. And the first thing, when somebody gets hurt, the first thing my other kids do is, I didn't do it. Right? And I constantly am like, even if you didn't do it, if they're on the floor screaming like their arm is about to fall off, your first priority is to attend to them. Even if you didn't mean to hurt them, get down and apologize and be with them and whatever that pain is and whatever result that was. You didn't mean to do it, but you hurt somebody. So help them. Help make them feel better. Lean into it with them. Lean into the relationship. And then part of humility is acknowledging your need for him. And that's called grace. And that's the next part of living a lifestyle of repentance. You repent, and as I talked about the circle, you repent, and then you 
believe. What does believe mean? Remember I talked about repent was this. Believing is this. Acting on it. Acting on the repentance. Going the other way. Turning around. If you don't apologize for something or if you don't acknowledge, acknowledge your sin, you are going to keep walking in the path of that sin and it's going to end in pain or hurt for somebody, you or somebody else. It will. Sin is not just a list of fun things that God doesn't want us to do. Sin is something that he didn't design us for, right? It's something he has better for us. It's not because he doesn't want you to enjoy something. It's because he has something better. And he knows better than you do what that is. Even if you don't feel like it, it doesn't feel right. I want to do this thing, even though it's outside of what God said. It feels good to me. He has something better. So when we believe, we are acknowledging that. God's grace meets me where I'm at, forgives me, makes me new, and leads me in a new direction, in a healthy direction. So when you believe, here's the step to that. Accept what you have learned. Accept what God has showed you. Or keep listening if you haven't learned anything yet. And dwell in God's grace. Dwell in it. Take it in. And when I say grace, I'm not talking about just forgiveness. I'm talking about his provision. That's God's grace. He meets us. That's what God's grace is. He meets you where you're at. Accept it. Let him lead you. Let him go along with you. I like this, uh, this verse in Romans. And we're going to put it up on the screen. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Give up what your body wants you to do if it's beyond what God wants you to do. Offer your body up as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. To kind of close out our time, I have, um, I have a little bit of a story for you. And I was, I'm so clumsy. Uh, I'm glad to have this great example for you. But I'm also sh showing a little bit of my sentimental, cheesy side. But let me set it up for you here. In the 50s, there was a, uh, a group of men who were missionaries who went to Ecuador to reach these people that hadn't been reached, okay? And how that happened was that the Shell Station, or the Shell Station, the Shell Corporation found oil in Ecuador. They wanted to drill it. They wanted to get it. And they wanted to go and take it from Ecuador. They go into Ecuador. They are confronted with several tribes. But the one that was the most, uh, got in their way, I would say, is called the Wadani. These were a tribe that had never been reached by any other living soul other than themselves. Nobody. And they were extremely violent. They would kill anybody that came in their presence. And so the Shell Corporation wants to take the land that they live on from them and take their oil. These missionaries, these Christian men, hear about this. And they know what that means. It means to go in with guns. Because if those people are coming at you with bows and arrows, you've got to shoot them. Get them out of your way. Take over where they live. Take over their home. And these missionaries, these men of God and men of God's peace said, no, these are people. These are God's people. 
Let us go in there first. Let us go in and try to make contact and do this in a peaceful way. So these five men take their families, and these five men are in their later 20s, early 30s. They're young. They've got really little kids. They move to a, a part of Ecuador that is pretty removed from where the Wadani live, and they have to fly this yellow plane over, and their plan to the Wadani is to drop things that they need first, supplies, and to slowly build like a, a, a rapport to say, we're not here to harm you. you we're not, we don't have any guns. We're here to bring peace, okay? And I have a clip now, six minutes long. It's a little bit long one. Anybody in here a fan of Stephen Curtis Chapman? <laughs> Go ahead, it's okay, raise your hand. <laughs> okay, 90 CCM, that's me. I liked it. He was my man, okay? And I went to see his concert in 2002, and I got to meet him. It was really cool, you guys. It was a really great concert, and what you're about to see is what I saw at the concert, and it really moved me, and it's about this story. And it's a story of um, repentance and redemption. So let's watch this together. But he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And so the day came, the moment they had fasted and prayed and hoped for. The overtures of friendship had been successful, and the missionaries made the first known peaceful contact between the feared Alcas and the outside world, complete with peanut butter sandwiches, insect repellent, and an airplane ride. Their moment had arrived. of courage with your message of peace what is that look in your eyes why have you come to this faraway place what is this story you would lay down your life to tell what kind of love can this be there is no greater love than this And there is no greater gift That can ever be given To be well and to die So another might live And there is no greater love Than
Imagine being five years old, a time when daddy is your hero. How do you tell a child the most tragic news of his young life? From all you have lost How can you sing through your tears? What is this music that can bear such a cost? What is this fire that grows stronger against the wind? What kind of flame can this be? young men, their whole lives ahead of them, their young families by their sides. Where was God when the spears went in? Where was God when the bodies were dumped in the river? Why? How? The questions flood, drowning all that you thought you knew. But this is not the end of the story. As is the case with God, sometimes what seems like a tragic end is really a miraculous beginning. One of the wives of the five martyrs and the sister of another were compelled to continue what was begun. Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint had studied the Alka language with an Alka woman named Dayuma who had escaped from the tribe during a killing raid and was now living in a nearby village. I'm going to leave where that story left off because the rest of the story was like nine minutes longer, so I'll tell you the rest of it. Here is where we see some incredible redemption happen. So as you just learned, two women went back to the Wadani tribe. They wanted to finish the work that these men had started. They believed this strongly that God was calling them to be people of peace to these violent people. And so they went and they made friends with this woman and they found a way in and they found a way to um, teach them things, to teach them um, God's word. 
they translated the entire Bible into their language for them. And through that, the men slowly started to trust them and learn and repent of their wrongdoings, ask for forgiveness and turn around. And the greatest story of redemption, and this is one that moved me, I was sobbing at this concert because what you, what you missed is at the end of this song comes up a, a gentleman, a tall white guy, and a short Indian looking man. And they come to the stage and are introduced and the, the white man, his name is Steve Saint. His dad was Nate Saint, who was one of the missionaries that was killed. And his aunt and his, um, uh, his aunt was one of the women that helped save this people from their violent death, essentially. And basically also save their eternities, right? Help them learn about God. And so Nate spent some time there when he was a kid. He too went back to meet these people. And there was one particular gentleman his name was Minkaye. Minkaye um, was curious about this little boy. This little boy didn't know how to shoot arrows. He didn't know how to make poison. He didn't know how to live in the jungle. And so Minkaye asked this little boy's aunt, you know, why, why doesn't he know what to do? And in their tribe, the fathers were responsible for teaching him these things. And she said, well, Minkaye, you killed his father. And he repented of that. And he felt like part of his repentance was to get to know this little boy and train him up and teach him the ways of living in the jungle. And then a few years later, Minkaye baptized him. The man who killed his father baptized him. That's incredible. It's an incredible story of repentance. If we don't learn to embrace this lifestyle, of acknowledging that God has better for us, and we miss out on that. And people in this world who are praying for freedom from something else miss out on it too because we're not there to help them. So in closing, I want to read one more verse. It's from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. I don't have it on the screen today, but I'm going to read it to you. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses here and in heaven, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out with us. Let's pray.